The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. Good morning, Doxa Church. Today our scripture comes from Esther 2, 5 through 11. You can follow along on the screen or in the Bibles in front of you. It's on page 411. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, with Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food. And with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and, the, and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the church of the harem to learn how Esther was, was and what was happening to her. This has been God's word. Let's pray and let's get rolling. Father, I thank you for uh, your presence here that is in our midst. God, I thank you for the truth that even though there are times when we feel like you are a million miles away, there are times that we feel that we have messed the whole thing up and that uh, there's no way back to you, that you are with us. God, you are always with us. You go before us and you are behind us and you are with us. And if we are a child of God, not only are you among us or around us, but you are in us. And Father, I pray this morning for those who do know you, that they would be aware of that presence this morning. They'd be aware that we would be aware. I need it, God, that we would be aware of you speaking to our hearts, of you leading and stirring our souls to you. God, we need our dry hearts and dry minds stirred, our affections stirred for you. And God, there are those uh, undoubtedly, in a room this size of people who do not know you. Maybe, maybe they think they've known you for a while. Uh, maybe they've grown up in church, but God, they do not know you. Their hearts have been not, not been awakened. God, I pray that you would awaken every heart this morning. God, we all stand in need of your grace. We all stand in need of your spirit. We all stand in need of your stirring. And if you don't do that, God, we are hopeless and we are helpless. And I pray that you would come to us this morning, lead us and guide us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So uh, I think this is a truth. Where we're starting a new series this, this week. Uh, we're going to be in a three weeks on Esther. And uh, I wish that you students could be with us all the way through. But I think this may be the most important one for you guys. Because uh, any age that you are, you long for a sense of calling. You long for a sense of purpose. You long for a sense of overriding purpose in your life. Uh, I, uh, and at any age, it's important, but particularly when you're younger, you're, uh, you guys, are, you're like, man, I, just don't, I want what God has for me. I want to make sure I fulfill God's purpose, God's calling on my life. Uh, we, we, but we all long for that. We long for a sense of 
overriding purpose that will animate everything that we do. Here, here's an illustration. I heard uh, actually Tim Keller, who I have a, a I don't know, a preacher crush on. Can I say that? Is it a thing? Tim Keller, who I have sort of a preacher crush on, he used this illustration with something else. Some of us at C Group Training last week heard him use it, but I think this applies somewhat to us today. He said, look, if you imagine two, two people, two, two men, two women, whatever, uh, and they're in two rooms and uh, they're making widgets. What is a widget? Whatever it is that you picture in your head right now, that's a widget. So you have, in one room, you have a a guy or a gal making a widget, and you tell them, hey, make this widget, come in here every day from eight to five, you come in, you make the widget, you clock in, and then you clock out, and you leave, and and here's what's going to happen at the end of that, at the end of that, uh, doing that for a year, we're going to pay you $20,000, all right? And then in the other room, you have an identical guy or gal making widgets, that thing that you're picturing in your head. You say, all right, come in, clock in, clock out, eight to five, but at the end of the year, you're going to make $2 million. Now, the person who goes in to make the widgets for $20,000 a year, very quickly, making widgets is going to get incredibly boring and incredibly dull, and they're going to be complaining every day when they get up and every day when they go home of just the monotony of making widgets. But the person making who's been promised $2 million at the end of it, how are they going to go into work? They're going to go in with a bounce in their step. Even if they don't like making widgets, even if they find it boring, it's not going to be too boring because there's 2 million reasons to be excited about every single widget that you roll out of that room. Purpose changes everything. If you feel a sense of purpose, a sense of calling, even in the mundane tasks that we undertake, if if it's connected to something greater, something grander, something larger, it changes all of life. We long for a sense of purpose, a sense of calling, a sense that we found our uh, or discovered our particular. That means individual to each person in this room, our particular and divinely designed purpose in life. Each of us had had the experience, I think probably at some point, of doing something that you're kind of good at, and you succeed at it, and people around you recognize it, and you find joy in it. You know that feeling whenever you find something that you really like, that you're okay or, or good at, and people around you say, hey, you are good at that, and you're like, oh man, this is really cool. Like the, the story from uh, the movie, the uh, just totally left me. The guy who, who ran, he said he felt heaven smiling. Uh, Chariots of Fire, thank you very much for helping me out with that. I, I'm very, terrible with movie references, so I should never, never try to make them at all. Uh, Ephesians 2.10 says, that, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's the reason, that's the reason, whether you're a believer or not this morning, that you long to have a sense of calling, a sense of divinely designed purpose in your life, to know that I am doing right now what God has called me, that God has crafted me and designed me to do this thing. The reason that you long for that, whether you are a believer or not, is because we were created by Christ Jesus to do good works that God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And the end, this is why I'm excited about covering the book of Esther, because in the end, Esther is a book about calling. It's a book about discovering your divinely designed particular purpose in life. 
And the, the cool thing that we're going to see is it may not be as magical and as elusive as some of us think it may be. Esther is set in a culture that's far from God. And we're going to see it in a section. We're covering all the, the whole chapters one, two, and three today. There's a lot of stuff that we won't be able to cover that are in, this, in these chapters, uh, but it's worth reading on your own. But as we're looking at these three chapters today, we're going to see that Esther is set in a culture that is dark, that is far from God. They do not worship God, and power and wealth are worshiped. Does that sound familiar to anybody? It's a culture that's far from God, where if you are serving God and loving God, you stand out in a crowd, and it's in a culture where power and wealth are what is actually worshipped. Power and wealth is what is lifted up and exalted as being the reason that you should be, that you should be living. We covered the book of, I was just thinking about this, we covered the book of Exodus, if you were around, and we finished in May, we spent September through May covering the book of Exodus. In a lot of ways, Esther is sort of the opposite of the book of Exodus, right? So in Exodus, you have a God who you see is active and at work. I mean, he shows up in a, in a burning bush and calls Moses. Moses goes to Egypt. He humbles the mightiest, most powerful king on the face of the earth with 10 incredible plagues. He leads the people out. They walk on dry land through the middle of a sea. They're led by fire by night and a cloud by day. He feeds them by magic heaven bread that comes down every night. And they, he feeds them and waters them. He waters them in a desert out of a rock. Like He is very present in miraculous ways. It is almost impossible possible to ignore the God of Exodus. And yet, the interesting thing about the book of Esther is the name of God is not mentioned once in the book of Esther. And sometimes, I don't know what your life is like, but oftentimes I read the book of Exodus and I think that is amazing, but I read the book of Esther and I think that's a lot more like my life. Because I rarely have a burning bush moment where God is, well, I've never had a burning bush moment where God is speaking to me out of the middle of a burning bush. I have, I've seen some cool, God do some cool things, but I haven't seen 10 plagues and a sea parting and a cloud of, fi- of fire by night and a cloud by day lead me. Oftentimes it feels like God is far away from me that I'm groping around in a culture that's far from God, and there are moments where I sense his presence and it is sweet. There are moments where I'm following after him because I feel close to him, but a great, a great amount of time, I feel like I'm just groping around in darkness. And it feels like God is a million miles away. And I wonder, am I doing what he's called me to do? And is he even real? Is this thing really real? And that's the situation that Esther and Mordecai find themselves in in the, book of, in the book of Esther. The interesting thing about the book of Esther is that not only is God unseen and unmentioned, but the namesake of the book, Esther herself, is a very unwilling heroine. She has no desire to be the hero of the story. She does not want to be catapulted, it seems, into uh, into the national promise where she becomes queen, and she certainly does not want to be the hero that saves the Jews. She is a very reluctant heroine. And Mordecai and Esther, Mordecai is her cousin, we're gonna see in a second, seem to be the unlikeliest duo to bring about great change in the most powerful palace on the face of the earth. They seem like the most unlikely duo to do that. And maybe you feel like you're unlikely 
and unnoticed. Maybe you feel like what you do every day, day in or day out, goes unnoticed. Maybe you feel like it's mundane. Maybe you feel like you don't have the giftings and abilities to make a big uh, effect on other people's lives, to make an effect for the kingdom of God. But maybe you're just like Esther and Mordecai. And Esther, by the way, had a book of the Bible named after her and written about her. That's why we're doing this series today. Based upon the mundane It's interesting also that the book of Esther, I'm just giving you some background here, the book of Esther was slow to be accepted into the canon of Jewish scripture. And we're reading between the lines a little bit here, but they think that part of that reason is Esther and Mordecai were still in captivity and where the, the people of Israel and Judah had disobeyed God and uh, Nebuchadnezzar had come in and he had conquered the nation of Judah and he'd taken a bunch of people from Judah into captivity back to the city of, or to the, the nation of Babylon. And now that a couple of changes, changeovers have happened and now the Persians are in charge of this empire and when the Persians come in charge, they send Jews back to repopulate the area around Jerusalem, and particularly Jerusalem itself, and they get a chance to rebuild the temple. And so the people who seem to be serious about God, they go back to Jerusalem to help rebuild the temple. And they go back, and they're, they're the ones who are now in, you know, the scribes and the powerful, the smart guys back in Jerusalem, the ones who have risked their time and lives to leave the comfort of the capital, the most powerful nation on the earth, and go back to Jerusalem to rebuild. And Mordecai and Esther find themselves a part of people who stayed. And so this, God uses the life of Esther and the life of Mordecai in the, the capital city of Susa. And whenever this book is written about them and it makes its way back into Jerusalem, we, we're kind of filling in the lines here, but a lot of people think that the people in Jerusalem, the religious leaders of the day said, this story does not contain a prophet, this story does not pertain a, contain a priest, and this story does not contain a king. It, it, require, it has, doesn't have anybody who is... Uh, seemingly serious about God in it, and God's name isn't even mentioned. And so we're not even sure this is worthy to be a part of the canon of Scripture. And the fact that it finally is accepted should be an encouragement to you and I who who are just sort of normal, everyday people, that God uses the lives of normal, everyday people in our normal, everyday lives in our mundane. We're going to spend the next three weeks looking at the idea of calling in the book of Esther. And today we're going to look at three elements in discovering your calling. Three elements in discovering your calling. We're going to see Esther and Mordecai. We're going to see their story. We're going to see how it relates to your story. We're going to see Esther and Mordecai's setting that they find themselves in. And we're going to talk about your setting. And we're going to see Esther and Mordecai's hands. And we're going to discuss your hands. And the end, we're going to see your story, your setting, and your hands are three elements in discovering your calling. First of all, let's look at their story and your story. The book of Esther starts off with a, in verses one through nine of chapter one, talking about King Ah. I've been dreading saying this name all week long. Ahasuerus. Uh, he is also known as King Xerxes. He is the mightiest man on the face of the earth. He's the son of Cyrus who uh, overtook the uh, old Babylonian empire and made it a, the Persian empire. And he is in charge of the deal. He is powerful. And it lays out in the first nine verses, just actually all the way through verse, yeah, first nine verses, just how powerful and mighty he was. He governed the whole uh, whole area from the uh, 
it says India, but it was really sort of the whole, maybe around Pakistan area, the area that was drained by the Indus River, all the way to Ethiopia. 127 provinces, there were 31, well, it doesn't mean, 30 satrapies, which is how they kind of like the, the states, I wasn't even intending to say that, the states that were in charge of the whole kingdom. And he has been building a great new palace and he wants to go fight the Grecians. He wants to go fight the Greeks. And so he decides that he's going to hold, it's an unprecedented thing, a 180-day feast to show off his new great palace and to, to have a time of uh, showing off his power and his might and convincing his nobles that it's time to go fight the Greeks. And at the end of the 180 days, then they open up the whole palace to not only his most important people, but they say, everybody come in and we're going to have a great feast and to, for people to come in and see the amazing palace. The, the, the ground, the tile was laid with mother of pearl. Every vessel that they served drinks in was gold. It's like if, it's like if you imagine like if Trump had, had a great feast and, every, and invited everybody to come in, this is what you would picture it would look like. It was great and powerful. He's, he's flexing his muscles. He's showing off his might and his wealth and his power to the whole world to see. And they come and they see it. And at the end of it, he has this queen whose name is Vashti. And she is a beautiful woman. She is hot. And so he decides he wants to show off because he's the most powerful man. He's got, got, the, he's got the, the most, he's the most wealthiest man on the face of the earth. He showed off his palace. Now he wants to show off his hot, beautiful wife to everybody around. And so he puts out a call for his wife to come and to show off her hotness for everybody else, for her to see. And when she gets the memo, something happens in Vashti, and she sends a memo back, and she says, I am not coming. We don't really know why. Uh, we, we, maybe she had a, a moment of, like, hey, it's not right that you're going to come and show me off like I'm some trophy. Maybe he wanted her to perform uh, uh, without being fully clothed in front of everybody. We don't really know, but she says, I am not going to do that. And he gets angry with her. And he talk, calls his officials together. He says, what I'm going to do, my wife, the queen, is not obeying my commands. And they say, king, you can't let her do this because if you let her go, then no wife is going to ever listen to her husband again. And you got to put your foot down for the sake of every other man in the kingdom. And so, he's, so he sends out an edict. He, not only does he remove her as queen, which he does, but he sends out an edict across to every village, every province, across the whole entire empire that says, I am removing back and every woman has to listen to her man. Uh, anyway, if you have to flex too hard, you're not really in control, but anyway. He sends out a command across, a edict across the whole province, the whole, every province in the empire that every woman has to listen to her man and he removes Vashti. And then time passes and he thinks, hey, I need to replace this queen, so what am I going to do? And so it says, I think this is interesting, his young advisors, because it sounds a thing like young men would, would uh, recommend to a king. He said, hey, king, here's what you should do. You should put out a talent search, a beauty search across the whole entire empire and find every beautiful, the most beautiful women across the whole entire empire and have them brought here to this city, king. We think this is a good idea for you to do. And the king says, hey, that sounds like a great idea. Let it be, so shall it be done. And so they put out this, this call across the whole empire and all the most beautiful women in the whole empire are brought to the capital city of Susa. Now, residing in the capital city of Susa happens to be a guy by the name of Mordecai and his young cousin, Esther. 
Now, they were Jews. And Jews were not respected, just like they haven't been in most of society in, this, in the uh, capital city of Susa. And so they didn't really advertise that they were Jews. They were, as I said before, they were brought to uh, this area because they, their capital, Jerusalem, had been conquered. And they had been the people of, of Jerusalem that had brought to the cap, capital. And now they, their descendants are still there. Now, Mordecai and Esther are there. More, Esther's parents dies. He's a lot older than her, and so he takes her in his, uh, under his care. He, is, he calls her his daughter. Now, Esther is a beautiful woman, and the Bible says it. On the, it says she was beautiful of form and appearance. So she was beautiful in every single way. And they see her, and they say she needs to be a part of this talent search, this beauty search, this beauty pageant, and they pull her into the king's harem. And the king's harem spends uh, 12, it's interesting, the, uh, it's also governed by a eunuch, because that just makes sense, right? I mean, if you, if you put a man in charge of a bunch of beautiful women, you need to put in some safeguards. And so they have him over in charge of these, of these women, and they spend a year pampering them and beautifying them and getting them ready for a night with the king. Now, this is kind of very, very sexist kind of thing that happens here because then after the year is spent, each woman gets one night to go in and spend with the king. And then supposedly into this time, he's gonna pick somebody to be his queen. Now, this is a great honor. And in some of these women, it's the highlight that their whole life is gonna go downhill from here. Because if you're part of the king's harem, you only sleep with the king. And he, and he has so many people in his harem, if you come through and you're forgettable, that may be the last time you ever see the king ever again. But Esther comes in and she's, as she's had favor with the eunuch who's in charge of all the, these young virgins. She comes in and she also has favor with the king. And the king likes what he sees. He likes Esther and he makes her his queen. And Mordecai tells Esther this whole time, just don't tell anybody you're a Jew. It's not going to go well if you do that. So Esther becomes queen, and the king is so pleased with her, he throws a great feast, another great feast, to celebrate Queen Esther becoming queen. Now, after this, Mordecai is hanging around the, outside the, the, the palace in the city gate, and he hears that there's a plot against the king. And so he tells Esther, hey, tell the king there's a plot against him. And Esther tells the king, and the plot is foiled because Mordecai stands up for Esther. So Mordecai has a little bit of standing. Esther has a little bit of standing. But the king makes a guy by the name of Haman. Stick with me, everybody. The king makes a guy by the name of Haman his second in control. Now, Haman is the kind of guy who lets power go to his head. And uh, it would be normal custom when Haman would drive through that everybody would bow before him. But Haman, I mean, but Mordecai will not bow to Haman every time he passes by because Mordecai is only gonna bow to the king of kings and the Lord of lords, God, the one God, the one true God. And Mordecai sees that he won't bow to him and he gets angry. But he can't like just come in and kill Mordecai because Mordecai has some standing with the king now because he's uncovered this plot. So Mordecai, who is an evil man, decides, here's what I'm going to do. If I can't touch Mordecai directly, I found out that Mordecai is a Jew and I'm going to destroy all of the Jews. And so Mordecai, he's, I mean, Haman is a patient man. He starts off this plot that takes a year to develop where he finally gets the king. He goes to the king and says, hey, king, there's a group of people. 
they don't worship you, they think differently, they act differently than you or I, and they're not much use to you. So you need to remove them. So why don't you pass an edict that on the 13th day of the 12th month of the year, that everybody should kill all these Jews who are of no use to you, and we'll get rid of them all at once. And the king says, hey, whatever, sounds good. Here's my ring, sign it, let's do it. And so the edict goes out now, the end of chapter three, we're left on this cliffhanger, the edict goes out that all the Jews, which of course Mordecai and Esther are as well, are to be killed on the 13th day of the 12th month of the year. Now here's the setting is set up for Jonathan to talk about next week about what happens after this. But here are Mordecai and Esther in a strange land, in a foreign land, in the middle of a land where the people are not friendly to God. They do not worship the one true God. And it seems like God is a million miles away. It doesn't tell us in here that at any point that Esther or Mordecai ever heard from God or heard from heaven. We have no record of there ever being a moment where they felt a booming voice or saw a fire in the middle of a bush. We don't hear or see God's name mentioned, but yet what we do see is that God's providential hand has led Mordecai and Esther to this very moment. God seems a million miles away, but his hand, his fingerprints are on the story that is going on that has happened, leading and guiding and upholding them in the midst of adversity. Now, here's the takeaway for you and I. All the story that I just account, recounted, how the, the Jews ended up in the Persian capital, how Esther and Mordecai ended up in this situation, all the things that had happened, that's their story that God had divinely orchestrated. And we can see how it seems very clearly to be divinely orchestrated once you've read all of Esther and you look back. But when you're in the middle of the story, it doesn't feel very divinely orchestrated. And here's the truth. God has providentially designed your story. God has providentially designed your story. Each of us has a story. Each of us have a background. All the events and people and things that have taken place to get you to this point. We each have a story. Every story is full, filled with some things that are joyous and some things that are terrible and tragic. Some of us have stories that are filled with laughter and some of us have stories that are filled with tears, but all of us have laughter and tears in the background. Some of us have been heinously abused. Some of us have had fairly good lives where we were brought up in a Christian home and we say, man, my life has gone pretty smooth up to this point. We each, though, have a story that forms us, that makes us who we are. And it's not just your own from however old you are from your birth to this point to now, but it, your story involves what your parents have done and their parents have done that have led you to this point. Esther and Mordecai find themselves exiled in a foreign land with a people who do not worship God, surrounded by people who do not worship and love God, they find themselves in the story not bad of anything that they've done. They find themselves in this place because their forefathers sinned and disobeyed God until they were sent out of Jerusalem and exiled into this foreign pagan land. We each have a story that makes us who we are, that takes us to the point of where we are. And here's the truth. Whether your story is tragic or joyous, God has designed it providentially 
to put you right where you are. He has providentially designed your story. Use your story. Some of you, you have things in your past that you have done that you are embarrassed of, that, you are, that are shameful. Some, some of you have had things done to you that are horrible, that are terrible, that, if, that, would, that would cause us all to break down in tears if we heard it. But here's the truth. God has woven all that together to bring you to where you are today. Use that story There are people around you who need to hear the background that has caused you tears and caused you pain and brought you joy. Share that with the people around you. If God has brought you out of a terrible history, share that with the people around you. Let that be a, don't don't hide it. Let that be a part of who you are just as it is and share it with the people around you. Esther and, Nea, and Mordecai's story that brought them to this point cannot be divorced from who they are. It is a core part of who they are. And, and your story is a core part of who you are. Use it. Accept it. We see the story that God had in the background of Esther and Mordecai had were very key in bringing to this place, this point of this, this plot is hats against the Jews and the question is gonna be, what are they going to do? And your story is a key part of who you are that's brought you to your particular place in discovering your calling. It's not just your story, but it's also your, st- your setting that you are in that helps us to discover your calling. Mordecai and, and Esther could have lived in some sort of limbo in, this, in the city of Susa because they weren't in the city and the land that God had promised to them to live in and to worship God. They were exiled away, and they could have said, hey, we can't really serve God in this place in a, in a land that's far away from God. We can't really serve him here. Our people who are back in Jerusalem, they're building the temple, they're serving God, but we can't really do anything here. They could have lived in some sort of limbo And I think most of us as Christians live in in some sort of limbo land. We we may look back in our history and see where God has done things, and we look towards our future and hope that God will work in our life again. But in our present day, in our present moment, we live as sort of like practical atheists, as if God isn't involved in our life and our in our in our setting and what's going on right now. But where you are right now, where you are right now. Where you live, your job, your vocation, your physical ailments, your strengths, your weaknesses, your relationships, all the things of where you are right now, God has divinely appointed for you to be right there. Just as Esther didn't seem like she could be of any use in the house when she's choosing to go into the household of a pagan king, maybe you feel the same way at times but God providentially appoints your circumstances. God providentially appoints the culture in which you live. The culture in which we live today is a dark culture. We talked about it last week. It feels like at times like there is chaos, that black versus white, rich versus poor, Republican versus Democrat. It seems like 
Like there is no way to find a middle ground between the two. They, there's uh, each of those cases that we're in the midst of a, of a chaotic, dark time. And yet you and I were placed into the particular culture that you are in and I am in right now for a divine purpose. It is not by accident that you live where you live in the culture that you live right now. God has called you and fixed you at this point so that you could find your sense of calling right now, right where you are. Your culture in which you live is providentially designed. The time in which you live is providentially designed. Even your gender and ethnicity is providentially designed right now. God providentially designed Esther to be a woman and to be beautiful at the exact moment of time so she could be chosen to be queen and brought into the king's household so she could fulfill her calling. And Mordecai had been given a uh, a sense of purpose to be her uh, to be her father figure and to grow and use the wisdom that God had placed in him to be the fulcrum that would the catalyst that would that would force and push Esther into her destiny that was his destiny and his calling and you have a particular calling and destiny right now in the very place where you live in the very time in which you live even your ethnicity and gender has been divinely designed by God. God providentially appoints your vocation. Whatever it is that you find yourself doing right now, it could be a career that you love. It could be a career that you hate. It could be a job that you hate. It could be a school that you love or school that you hate. You may know or think you know exactly where you're going or you may feel like you're just going around in circle after circle after circle, but God has appointed to be for you to be the person that you are in the setting that you are, in the vocation where you are right now. He has designed each of those things for his purpose. The things that Mordecai was doing at the time sitting in the city gate, the thing that Esther was doing as, she's, as she is, uh, frankly, just being beautiful and then being chosen to come in and be, uh, to grow in her beauty and her decorum in the king's household, it seemed like it was trivial, but God was using it for a greater purpose. And God has you right now and your vocation and your gender and your ethnicity and your culture and your time with a divinely designed purpose. A godly designed calling. Your story, your setting, and then your hands. You see that God had designedly designed the setting that Esther and Mordecai lived in, and then God placed something in their hands. You see, calling. The sense of calling isn't a dream. It's not a hard-to-reach, ethereal concept. The call, you're, you know what your calling is? Here's, here's the question. What's your story? Where are you? And what's in your hand? That's your calling. What's your story? Where are you now? And what has God placed in your hand? That's your calling the history that makes up who you are, where you happen to be right now, what your life looks like, and then your particular skills and abilities that God has given you combined to make up your calling. Think about it. Mordecai's greatest contribution 
Uh, we're gonna see at the end of Esther, it's kind of cool that Mordecai ends up rising to power. But Mordecai's great contribution, the focus of the book of Esther isn't on what Mordecai did after he came to power. The focus of Mordecai's contribution is what he did in the life of Esther. And you know how that happened? It happened by day in, day out, being a father figure to, to Esther telling her to clean her room and teaching her manners and teaching her who God was and how to worship God and how to live her life in a, in a sense of integrity under the hand and eyes of God. That was Mordecai's great contribution in the day in, day out monotony of being a father to Esther. Esther and Mordecai each find a different calling right where they were, but it's based upon their different story, their different setting, and their different skills and abilities. God uses Mordecai's wisdom, and God uses Esther's beauty and grace and charm in this setting. And beauty and grace and charm may seem to be trivial, but in this story, God uses it to change history and to save thousands and thousands of people. And here's the truth. Your skills and your abilities, what you do with your life, when you're doing your homework, when you're searching a real estate title, when you're, when you're cleaning teeth, when you're uh, putting in ductwork, when you're doing plumbing, whenever you're writing a brief, whatever it is that you may do with your life, in each of those mundane things, each of the mundane skills that God has placed in your hand, they all are a part of God's divinely designed, discovering God's divinely designed calling for you. Right where you are, your skills and your abilities that God has given you combined with your story and your setting, help you discover your calling in life. Not only that, but the spiritual gifts that God has given you. Romans 12 talks about having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. What he's saying there is that every single person, if you're a believer, has been given a gift by God in order to serve the greater purpose of God. And whatever gift that he has given you, employ that gift right where you are in combination with the, how your stories set up your personality and your setting where you are right now. You serve people around you with those spiritual gifts. Here's a little thing that'll help us, hopefully. Here's how to discover, discover your calling your sense of overriding divinely designed purpose in life. What is, the, what is the need that you see around you? What are your skills and your abilities? What are the people around you, the other Christians confirm are your spiritual gifts and what are your opportunities? What's the need around you? What do you see when you look around you? You, say, you see a problem where you say, somebody needs to take care of X, whatever that X is. Something, somebody needs to do something about that. I want to do something about that. And then what are your particular skills and abilities? What do you have an ability and a skill to do? And then what do the people around you confirm to you are your spiritual gifts? And then where do you have an opportunity to serve? 
where, all the, where those four circles intersect, that is your calling. The need. Let's say you look around you and you say, hey, somebody needs to do something about uh, the, peop- the, the children who are in this community who don't have father figures in their life. Somebody needs to do something about that. I grew up without a father figure, and I know how that can hamstring you, and somebody needs to do something to step in and be a father figure to those people. Well, what are your skills and abilities? You say, I don't have any skills and abilities. Well, let's talk more about that. What, what do you like to do? Well, I like woodworking. I, I build little projects around the house, but I'm not very good with talking with people and leading them conversations, but I love to do that. Okay, do the people around you like see uh, as you're sharing the story in your community group or with some people around a coffee and they say, hey, I can really see you pulling a couple of guys under your wings and doing projects with them. And as you do that, you can sort of be a positive influence in their life. I can see you doing that. And then you see an opportunity. You meet a couple of guys who have that need and you s- start that process. The place where you're where the need around you and your skills and abilities or, and the confirmation of the people around you and, your, and the opportunity arises, that is your, your place of calling. And that is across your life. It's not just in the things that we would consider spiritual, but it's in the mundane, everyday things of life. That's found in your place of work, in your school, in your neighborhood. You might be a stay-at-home mom and you might feel like your life doesn't account for anything. But God is using you exactly where you are. Your story, your setting, and what he's put in your hands to make an influence for for his kingdom. What's your story? What's in your, where are you? And what's in your hand? We don't see the name of God mentioned anywhere in this book, but we see his unmistakable fingerprints. But it never looks, it hardly ever looks like that for the people that are involved at the time. Esther and Mordecai, as Mordecai is raising Esther day after day, month after month, year after year, it probably didn't feel like he was doing anything great. It probably felt like very mundane, forgettable things. But God was working in the middle of the mundane. Any idea of calling, of a great purpose being worked out in our, in our everyday life is dependent upon, though, first being called a child of God. We are, our calling is to work with God in his redemption of the world, but you can't work with somebody that you're working against. And if you haven't first heard the call to the Father through Jesus, then you can't join in his great work. But whenever you hear his call and you become a child of God, you confess your sin to him and you repent, you faith, place your faith and trust in him and you become a child of God, then you can join in the great work of God. You can discover your calling in your life. You can join God in his work, but you must first join him in surrender and worship. I pray that this morning that we would take a moment as we're gonna pray before we get ready to take of the bread and the juice, that we would take a moment and just think about how 
what, how your story and your setting and what he has placed in your hands, your skills and abilities, can combine to inform us, inform you of his calling in our life, in our daily life, in the often mundane that he will use for his glory. And if you're here and you've never placed your faith and trust in him, I pray you would do that this morning, even as we pray. Uh, Father, I pray for uh, each person in this room. God, we are often find ourselves in uh, the mundane of life. It seems like you're a million miles away. It doesn't feel like you're at work anywhere. And yet it's there in the mundane that we can discover our calling. It's there in the mundane that we can realize that the, the story that you have given us, whether we like it or not, the setting that you put us in, whether we like it or not, and the skills and abilities and spiritual gifts that you put in our hands, whether we are excited about them or not, together are what you've called us to do. And when we serve you in our in our setting with what you put in our hands, it gives great purpose to everything that we do. Well, I pray that you would help us to just begin to see as we leave here and through our week how you've called us in our everyday life to serve you and to love you your glory and for our joy. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.